Hey people, welcome to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible, and that if we all work together, there is time to create a future that we would be proud to leave to the generations that come after us. I'm Manda Scott, your guide and fellow traveller on this journey into possibility. And this week, we're heading back into the inner work that feels to me so essential to our creating a way through to that future that we would be proud of. We already explored it in the last few months with Alnur Lada and Lynn Murphy, and then with Ang Harad, and then with Simon Raphael. And now we're back with Dr. Maggie Ostara, who's an old friend of the podcast. She was with us back in episode 116, when we talked about finding our purpose in the world. What's mine to do? What's yours to do? What's ours to do together? And I have put a link in the show notes to that in case you want to go back and listen. Since then, though, Maggie has written a book. It's called Feminine Sovereignty, Eight Pillars for Regenerating Ourselves and Our World. It was published towards the end of last year, November 2023, and I have been wanting to talk to Maggie ever since. And now we have the time, because this book is absolutely of our time and for our time, and completely aligned with the Thrutopian ideals of accidental gods and everything else that we're doing. It's courageous and it's definitely hard-hitting in terms of its dissection of where we are, but it is absolutely full of compassion and wisdom and Maggie's experience of holding space for people and working with people and helping everybody to find their own path in a way that has coherence and integrity. There are intellectual exercises and emotional exercises and embodied exercises and things where you just read it and think, hmm, okay, I'll just put it down and go out for a walk and think about this for a while and then come back and when I processed it, I'll dive in again. So it's it's well worth reading. It's not something that you start at the beginning, go on to the end and then stop, I think. So you might want to do that and then go back. But anyway, it's there and you can order it now. And as you'll hear in the podcast, Maggie is also running a year-long course which is starting early in February and which does still have room on it and there will be a link in the show notes by the time you get to this. So here we go. People of the podcast, please welcome Maggie Astara, author of Feminine Sovereignty, Eight Pillars for Regenerating Ourselves and Our World. Maggie, welcome back to the Accidental Gods podcast. How are you and where are you? I never remember. Are you in California still? I am in Northern California and I am well. We have had quite a bit of rain, but not so much of atmospheric rivers like we had last year. So we celebrate a lot here when we have rain that we can actually receive, the earth can receive, and it doesn't create flooding, and it nourishes everything. And um, so, you know, we're the darker winter still, right? It's, uh, you know, darker winter. But I have to say the days are getting a little bit longer, which always perks me up when I can see the days getting longer. So yeah, so I'm well, I'm happy to be starting a new year and delighted to be talking to you. Thank you. Yeah, we schedule these. When someone's in America, we schedule recording at six o'clock UK time. And I scheduled it months and months ago. And I forget that around this time of year, that's not far after the point when the chickens are kind of thinking they might go to sleep, but they might not. <laughs> I spend quite a lot of time hen herding. 
before we come onto the podcast. <laughs> that was fine. And and we've just had frosts and they haven't got frostbite in their feet yet. So this is all good. Mm-hmm. So, and it's January. You know, when we first moved here, we were told that we'd have to fill the freezer for two weeks in January, February, because there would be a point when we couldn't get out because of the snow. And we have never seen that much snow. It's like the weather is not what it is. It's all changing, isn't it? Yeah. Anyway. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, everything is changing faster than we thought. But that means there is opportunity for change. And you have written a book designed to help people to do that. Feminine Sovereignty, Eight Pillars for Regenerating Ourselves and the World. And congratulations. How is it doing? Is it doing as well as you would like? Thank you. Thank you. Well, it just came out. So it's been out, I guess, two months now. Um, and we had a really great uh, book birth process, and um, I think we have sold about a thousand copies. Yay! So for a first-time self-published author, that's uh, a good start. That's really good. Yes. Yeah. So I'm happy with that, and um, I'm also, you know, working with readers and offering them some. I'm actually starting Ten Days of Sovereignty today, which is a gift for my readers and my my community which is just kind of introducing them to some of the key themes in a very accessible way. And so some of them are readers, some of them are checking it out. And um, and it's just a great way for me to uh, build community and be with people. And, and I learned so much also from how people are working with material. So that's why I really like to be very highly interactive and be in community with people because it grows me a lot as well. Yes. And then it makes a book not a static thing. Well, exactly. Then it becomes an evolving process. And presumably a new book arises at some point. But in the meantime, you can bring in the people, you can explore things more deeply. And the book becomes something much more alive than we could ever do in the old days when we just went around and talked to people at festivals or book readings or whatever else. It's so different these days. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So I'd like to get into that later on. But before we get there, feminine sovereignty, that's your title. And it seems to me that both of those are words that have multiple meanings and many depths and many layers. And so let's look into those if we can. Let's just look into what feminine means first for you Partly because I'm aware that we spoke to Nina Simons not very long ago, and we spoke a lot about the masculine and the feminine being within both of us, but we never really took the time Mm. to unpick that. We were talking about other things. So I'd like to take that time with you now. So what does feminine mean for you in the context of the current world? Well, I think, let me just be very transparent. I'm not one of those people who's been out teaching about the divine feminine or, or anything. Not that I have anything against it, but it just hasn't been my thing. And really, I've always been kind of a mm, gender uh, non-binary in my own way, gender divergent in my own way. Uh, and so I love now how we have so much uh, gender diversity um, compared to certainly when I was growing up. Um, and so, and my kid identifies as non-binary. And so I think that we're starting to have a lot more um, breathing space around gender and what gender can mean. So I chose the word uh, feminine very specifically for this book. And I'm happy to go back into a larger conversation if you want to, Amanda, but let me just say the reason I picked it for, for my book was as a uh, juxtaposition 
to the sovereignty of individualism, which mask does not rec- does not call out the fact that it is a masculine form. The, I mean, just historically. So I'm a historicist by training, so you'll have to <laughs> bear with me in this. But you know, like in the United States, where we had the first sovereign state and we had the first sovereign citizen in this country, it was definitely gendered as male, right? And then it became racialized as white. Was you know, and so the sovereign citizen has these attributes which are not that are elided in the way that we talk about history. We don't that we don't bring up the gender. We don't bring up the racial stuff. We're starting to do that now. But for, you know, many, many decades, uh, that was never a thing. And so it was just the rugged individual who got to, who was autonomous and independent and, you know, could do what he wanted to do as long as he didn't hurt somebody else, right? That this was the sovereignty of the the citizen, right? Um, Here in the US. I'm sure there's versions of that elsewhere. This is what I know best, both both because I grew up here and also because that's where my academic work was in uh, in the United States. And so, one of the things I've seen as more and more people have been claiming the term sovereignty for themselves, which has been interesting for me to watch because I've been using the term for twenty five years, and now it's like all over the place, and people are using it for all kinds of different things. And we can go into that more if you want. But one of the things I see is women. Um, and non-binaries and people who have felt, let's just say more generally excluded from that notion of individualism, right? Claiming sovereignty out of a desire to be included in individualism, which of course leaves the whole system intact, right? It just says, right. we just want to, we just want to be, have a part of that pie, please. You know, can't we just have the American dream? Yep. Yes. The paradigm stays the same. You just increase the franchise a bit, right? We just we just increase the franchise, and of course, you know the the movements for social justice have been about this, not at all to denigrate them. But I think now, mm. when you know, I grew up in a came of age in a feminist household in the seventies, and I look at civil rights, grew up during civil rights, feminism, and that was all about how can we expand the population that has the ability to participate fully as a citizen. And the thing is, is that leaves the system intact. Right. And I think that the idea was that when people of different identities go into the system, the system will change. And I think there's some truth to that, but I also think we're running into that wall of the system really has to be fundamentally transformed. So all of that to say, the reason I chose feminine sovereignty was to juxtapose it to that current trend that I see where in its most crude terms, this is going to be really kind of, <laughs> you know, crude, which is that I claim sovereignty so I can, I can have full access to be the biggest consumer I want to be. Right. Yes. Right. I want to be able to make as much money as possible. I want to have a big house. I want to be able to travel anywhere I want at any time. Right. That like they want. So people have, claim sovereignty for that. And I'm like, oh, no, 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 what I'm talking about, it's not that. (laughs) So then what is it, right? And so I use the term feminine to uh, bring up qualities such as compassion, uh, interconnectedness, caring, feeling like we're all in this together, recognizing that we are, you know, we're, we're one big human tribe and we have to 
get beyond our tribal affiliations as you've, I've heard you talk about, you know, many times that, that certain kinds of tribalism are really a problem, right? So, but we want to find these qualities where we're like, hey, we're all in this together. We got to like come together. And to me, that's a feminine quality. How do you get to that being a feminine quality? I, I, I'm not suggesting it's not, but I think it's interesting that we have gendered inclusivity versus exclusivity. Mm-hmm. Well, let me just say that I don't think any of this is natural. Okay. I don't think any of this is innate. This is not something that's innate in, for, in somebody who has a female body or anything like that. For me, this is all socially constructed that we create this binary of masculine and feminine, right? And then we attribute different qualities to those different categories. So let me just say that it's, I, I am not an essentialist in that way. You know, like women are like this and men are like that and mm. women are feminine and men are masculine. Like, no, I, not at all. Right. But it was, it was a way in my view of trying to signal to people a distinction that I was making around sovereignty that I thought would be visible for people who tend to in that social construction of feminine, of the feminine relate to that. So it was a okay. it was a choice that had to do with how do I best communicate with people rather than me trying to express some kind of essence of what I think is feminine if that makes if that makes sense. Wonderful. So that makes a lot of sense of feminine being an internal process and sovereignty in many ways it sounds to me as if it's you're trying to expand sovereignty beyond a particular cultural moment in time with the US where sovereignty gained a particular set of concepts. And I'm guessing sometimes when I talk to American groups and I'll ask them what's important, half the group will say liberty. And I have genuinely no idea what they're talking about. What do you mean by liberty? Do you want the liberty to murder kittens? They don't. Do you want the liberty to lie in the middle of the road and have cars drive around you? No, they don't. Liberty has very specific cultural meaning. And and so what seems to me is that sovereignty presumably also has quite rigid, from what I heard, cultural definitions and that you're trying to expand this. So the obvious question, now that you're working with your readers, is are there many men coming to this to find their people who identify as men? to find their feminine sovereignty, or is it still largely people who identify as women? Well, I mostly work with women. I've always mostly worked with women. Mostly women are are, are the people who are attracted to working with me. I also do, in the book and also in my work, I do specifically address ways that women have been uh you know, marginalized and persecuted and so on. So my feeling about men is they're totally welcome to come and participate. And sometimes they do, as long as they're willing to understand that they're not going to be the center, right? I decenter men, I decenter that. Right. And for some men, that's totally fine. They're like, yeah, I don't really need to be the center anymore. <laughs> like, I get it. Like, that's no. Yeah. And others are like, wait, what about me? Wait, 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 what about me? So I, I'm, I'm just like, if they're happy to come into an environment where women are the center and their voices are, are really, really encouraged and they may hear things that are hard for them to hear, then I'm fine with them 
being there. Mm. But 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 my my environment is very specifically kind of focused that way. Although I've had men who've looked at my book say, this isn't just for women. And I'm like, absolutely, it's not just for women. Although there is material that's specifically like in the chapter about vitality and embodiment um, and our relationship to the living world, I talk a lot about the way that women's bodies have you know, all the different things that have happened with women's bodies over the years. And I don't talk about that with men's, about men's bodies. So in that way, there is a kind of women focus to what I'm doing. Right. But what I would say about sovereignty is, uh, you'll like this, I think, Manda, I first was introduced to it working with a shamanic practitioner who was talking about energetic sovereignty, right? She introduced, I mean, this was 25 years ago, it was 1998, And we were doing work and she was talking about, from a shamanic point of view, the significance of having energetic sovereignty so that you don't have other energies in your field, basically, right? Right. And I was like, oh, yes. I was really attracted. There's a quality to the word that I really loved. And I... I think that there is an appeal that many of us have to the kind of regal quality that can go with sovereignty when we think of royalty, for example, um, the regal part. And what I've wanted to do is say there are qualities of this energy of this word that we that are appealing to us. And the best sovereigns historically were always benevolent. They were always concerned about the well-being of their people. Hmm. They were always concerned about the well-being of the land. And we have historical antecedents of, of the few who were like that. And so I want to reclaim this possibility and... And I don't quite know what you think about this, but I, you know, I've read about the sovereignty goddess, right? Who was an ancient pre-Roman, old, old Europe figure who was the one who joined, chose and joined with the king representing the land um, to say, ah, you know, we, she was the one who said, okay, I think we can trust him. We're going to select him and joined with him. And then she could remove him if he was not acting appropriately and protecting the people and all of that, right? And so for me, that's a really, and this is my ancestry, and this is something that I find really interesting and appealing because then we have a more a, a more of a balance of masculine and feminine during that time. Hmm. And so, you know, not to, not to re- try to return to that past or something, but to be like, what is still, where is there juice for us in that idea? And one of the things with the modern sovereignty and individualism is, is that it's this idea that as you're, autonom- you're an autonomous being with has, has this independence. But actually, if you look at sovereignty, you can't be a sovereign on your own. You're a sovereign because you have a people or you have a domain, you have a terrain, you have something that you are responsible for. You have something that you are, you know, again, in the highest expression, right? We've seen a lot of dictators, a lot of authoritarianism, you know, a royalty is, is rife with, with that. And yet in its highest expression, it's about how do we step into really taking responsibility for that which is within our purview and helping it to heal, to thrive, um, and to be, um, you know, in its highest expression. So that's the kind of energy of sovereignty that I want to invoke. Right. Because the problem with individualism is, is it really focuses on rights, 
it's like, these are my rights, mm. rights, yes. rights. And I'm like, where is the responsibility that goes with those rights? And this is a big problem that we historically have in this country. Yes. And so it's like, it, it, we have to balance rights with responsibility, which is where it, for an adolescent, right? That is the, the shift from adolescence into adulthood is to take on responsibility, personal responsibility first for our own actions and our behavior and our words and all of that. But then resp- responsibility as a member of the tribe or a member of the community. And this is the missing piece that I think um, I certainly want to invoke um, in terms of what p- sovereignty can can give us. And so that was also the place that where I, you know, have been working with sovereignty to look at how do I take responsibility, you know, in the early years, how do I take responsibility for my own energy field, right? Which is what that practitioner had said to me. I was like, oh my gosh, I'd never even thought I, number one, that that was there. And number two, that I needed to do it. And I didn't know how to do it. It was like a new thing for me at the time. Yes. But how do I take responsibility for my emotional state, for my physical vitality, for how I show up in the world, for the things that are inside, you know, in my, my ability to care for. And so that started as a kind of personal exploration, um, but it grew a lot uh, really during the pandemic, when we saw this uprising of people around the world after George Lord was murdered. And, you know, so many people, so many white people were like, wow, I got to wake up to my privilege. I have to wake up to how, to systemic racism and how this is really damaging to huge portions of our population. And it's t- take on some responsibility for unraveling mm. that white supremacy, right? That 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 systemic racism. So for me, sovereignty is about that too. It's like how do we become more sovereign and more caring and more compassionate and more inclusive of all the world's people? And then, of course, through Thrutopia and Accidental Gods. You know, I've been exposed to so many different opportunities for how do we do that for our living world. And so many examples that you highlight mm. that show how people are doing that in so many different places. So for me, sovereignty is about all of that. And that's why also I call it out explicitly by the end of the book, which is about becoming sovereign stewards. Let's go inwards before we go outwards, though, because I think there's a lot still to unpick in that for sure. And I'm reminded of something that I saw the other day, which says, said, the single biggest thing I learned was from an indigenous elder of Cherokee descent who called Stan Rushworth, who reminded me of the difference between a Western settler mindset of I have rights and an indigenous mindset of I have obligations. Instead of thinking that I'm born with rights, I choose to think that I'm born with obligations to serve past, present and future generations and the planet herself. And this was in a particular fertile flow of various things on social media, because not long after that, somebody keyed me into someone who said returning to tradition doesn't mean returning to the past. It means reconnecting to the wisdom of our ancestors and bringing it forward with us, which is exactly what you're saying. And what your book really is about is that let's acknowledge our birthright and step forward, because exactly as you're saying, the history 
of power over in humanity, as far as we know, is relatively short. 300,000 years of evolution where presumably we were fairly balanced and then 10,000 years of what Francis Weller calls the trauma culture where we have allowed the psychopaths to rise to the top. I, I had a very interesting conversation not so long ago with Rachel Donald where she said that in Papua New Guinea they identify the psychopaths, send them out alone into the forest, kind of just totally excluded them from the tribe unless they need to fight a war when these people guys generally, are invited back to fight the war. If they're still alive at the end of it, they're sent back out into the forest again and they go. Which, you know, can you imagine doing that with some of the psychopaths at the top of your and my political structures? Sorry, guys, you're just going to the wilderness forever. And actually, if we get it right, there will be no wars, so you will not be coming back. Wouldn't that be amazing? Amazing, yeah. Anyway, back to your book. And exactly, I just want to say, Amanda, exactly what you read, that quotation you just read, exactly. Right. That's exactly what I'm talking about is one of the things I did in doing research for the book is I went and checked out the conversation about human rights. And I went and I looked at the the UN. I forget exactly what the title is, but it's like the UN Charter of Human Rights or something like that. And there's 150 or something of them. Only one of them says what we should do. All of them are about things that cannot be done to us. Uh-huh. Right, our rights right. are again. And that was so interesting to me because that means those are all developed in response to authoritarianism in some form, right? Whether that was royalty to begin with, right? Yeah. But it's it's all about pushing back against forces that are trying to, you know, confine us and make us do certain things. And I think your point when you were saying about liberty, you know, people from the US are all about liberty. I think that, that that's an example of how that shows up, yeah. right? Is, is it all about liberty? Like you can't do this, you can't do this to me, you know? Um, and yet there's nothing in there. There's only one little thing in there about the um, what our responsibilities are. Whereas if you read the um, Great Law of Peace, of what most people know as the Iroquois, they the great law of peace is all about responsibility. Mm. That that's what it's about. Right. It's not about rights. Right. It, it's about who we are as a people and how we need to what we need to who we need to be in order to be good leaders. There's all kinds of requirements for the chiefs, <laughs> and all the women decide if the men are going to be chiefs or not. Yes. And they remove them if they're not. It's the same you were just saying, right? Send them off into the forest. Yeah, yeah. And, you know, and when our so-called founding fathers took that great law of peace and used it as a basis for the Constitution, they left out all the part about all those responsibilities and also about the women being the ones who are choosing the chiefs. Like, they conveniently just left all that out. Missed that bit. Because it didn't fit with their... yes. It's indigenous, indigenous life meets patriarchy, right? Right. And it, it becomes quite interesting. I would like to unpick this a little bit. I want to go back to your book again. But we come up against this quite a lot in the podcast because we grew up in the trauma culture. And the idea, even then, when you and I were young, which you know, was an aeon away in modern technology and, and the advance of civilization and the changes that have happened. But... I wanted to be free of the culture and the strictures of the culture within which I grew. It was a little Presbyterian village and 
there was stuff that you know, the kind of person I knew I was being was not going to get on well there. And yet when I read accounts of indigenous peoples that are not filtered through missionaries or other people who impose their own belief systems on it, the freedom to be who you want is integral to the requirement to be part of the community. That seems to me something that's really missing from the West or from our Western educated industrial rich, industrial rich, democratic, weird culture is that if we imposed on people obligations to be part of a community, the community isn't there, the support, the network, the sense of being held by people by whom you are both respected and for whom you have respect is just not there. And so I was talking to Josh Davila the other day about coordinations, and about creating new nation states that are digital from people who do have that sense of respect flowing between and among. Our communities of place have broken down because we don't have the kinship, we don't have the connection, we don't have whatever it took to make the glue to help people to feel safe where they live. And I wonder if in your work with the book, you had any sense that our communities of place, purpose and passion were beginning to become disparate and that communities of place may no longer be the basket within which a sovereign person can function? Well, I don't, I wouldn't say that they couldn't function. However, part of our legacy is so as women we lost our sovereignty under patriarchy and as indigenous people all over the world we lost our sovereignty under the age of empire and so which was also patriarchy which right which often goes with patriarchy right but they're not exactly the same and so i think that one of the legacies of that is displacement you know that people don't live in the ancestral lands of their people um, often. I mean, even just like in the UK, like if you just think about what happened with the enclosure movement, right? Where people were, you know, getting along. You know, Forcibly displaced. And, yes. you know, and then they had to move and they had to go into cities that were, were, were that had no infrastructure. And no wonder everybody got sick. You know, I mean, it got crazy, right? Because people were displaced off of their ancestral lands. And of course, this is what empire does, is it displaces people and the, the lucky ones maybe get out, <laughs> you know, they, they, right? And that's kind of what happened is, you know, so many Europeans came here to the United States because they're like, we gotta get out. <laughs> like, where are we gonna go? We gotta get some, we gotta go somewhere. And then of course, the indigenous population here got displaced because those people came. And what's happened, the legacy that we have of that is one of displacement, of unrootedness. We are unrooted people, many of us. And so, and I know, I think that's why a lot of, you know, indigenous people I've talked to mm. here in this community are kind of like, when are you guys going to like get it together and like <laughs> root yourself somewhere and like be a part of your, your land? Like, like even in um, braiding sweetgrass, right? Kimmerer says this, she's like, when are you, when are you guys going to start becoming more indigenous? You know, relate to the land, learn about the plants, mm. take care of your environment. Like that, like that's that's an option for us. And yet, I th just even think about the number of places I've lived in my life. Like many, 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 and that's not uncommon for somebody of my, you know, my background. And so, 
when it comes to communities of place, a lot of times people don't, they're not in the same place. Um, and if they're in the place, they don't necessarily have a relationship to the land that would really feed them about being in a place. Mm. I mean, you're such a great example of your relationship with the hill that you go to, right? And that you, you, you know, you commune with the web of life mm. there. I mean, that's being related to the land. And I'll even just say for myself, I, I, I try, but I notice how hard it is for me to do that. Is there a place in the world where it's easy for you? Have you ever found anywhere where that was easy? Connecting to the land specifically? Well, it's not that I can't have experiences, but I don't feel like a rooted person, mm. if that makes sense. Like I don't feel there. And even now I have a restlessness right. in myself, okay. um, which I think is a pattern from my legacy, you know, of, of moving around. So given that in our world, like I call my, I have an online community and I call it a community of purpose. And it, 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 it's a global community. Um, there's almost a thousand people in it and it's growing. And there's people from all over the world in it. And that's exciting to me because there are a lot of people who come and who participate who don't have access to a lot of the things that I'm offering where they are. Yeah, exactly. And they don't necessarily find their community of purpose where they live. And so we're looking for that online. And I think that that can be very positive. And it's interesting what you just said about like this idea of, what is it, digital nation states? Is that what you said? Coordinations, they call them. Yes, yes, absolutely that. Yeah, you know, I mean, the, the woman who created the platform that I lose for my online community, it's called Mighty Network. And she said that she really envisioned that these are all communities of people choice of purpose that people come to and that as time goes on people will pick a few that they feel really connected to where they can find the people that they um, can share with can support can be a part of projects together and that she had created this platform to facilitate that and I love that vision because there are so many people who are unrooted and people who are, are waking up all over the place, but where they live, they may not be finding that camaraderie. Yes, no, absolutely. It's it's the great, one of the great developments of our time is that we can do this. And and I think part of the vision of the coordination is that you, that's your first step as you build your community of purpose and then you network out and find other communities of purpose that share your values and a community of communities arises and then we can begin really to reach the tipping points where things begin to change. So thank you. Let's let's move. Let's take a slightly different tack because this is really interesting. But I think we probably we could keep going on down that rabbit hole, but we probably don't need to. Instead, I'd like to talk about genre because you and I met on the Throughtopian masterclass, and we were you know, we still are endeavouring to create a new genre because dystopias are really not useful. Utopias don't help us because we can't see how to get there and we need the Throughtopias to take us from where we are to where we need to be and that these are both fiction and non-fiction and you have created, I would say, uh, a non-fiction Throughtopian book 
you 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 tell stories in it. You tell bits of memoir in it. You tell other people's stories, as well as having the real deep embodiment of what we can do. I want to talk about that later too. But talk to me a little bit about what genre means to you as a writer. Getting out in the world, even just getting onto Amazon and having to allocate your book somewhere when Thrutopian, even climate, is is not actually a category on Amazon. How did you navigate that? Although I do have to say I picked a category on Amazon that was Earth Guardianship. Oh, is that a category at Amazon? It is a category. It's a subcategory. Like you have to go down in it, but we found it. Well done, that woman. So it's in Earth It's in Earth Guardianship, which I was happy to be a part of. So genre. So I grew up in a literary family. And so I had literature you know, in my life from the earliest, earliest times. And my father was an English professor and he taught many, many different genres. And he really loved literature and language and narrative. Magic. And I was thinking about this this morning uh, that I was really raised on Lord of the Rings from early, early age. So I was fed, I read, my mother read The Hobbit to me when I was seven. And my dad read The Lord of the Rings to me when I was eight. Goodness. And you didn't have nightmares? No, I no, not from that. I had no, my nightmares from other things. But um, no. And so I was really raised on story, myth, uh, you know, this kind of deep sense of ancientness, um, magic, but mysterious, unreliable, inconsistent magic, but, you know, power in the world. And, you know, so I, so that was really a big part of me. So, so when I came to write this book, I knew I needed to write it in an, I guess we might call it a not straightforward way in the sense that, you know, because I have an academic background, right. My, my default to some degree is if I start talking about kind of bigger issues is to get kind of intellectual and academic. And very linear. And I was like, no, that's not, that's not, and yeah, that's not the book I want to write. So I charged myself with the challenge of presenting multiple genres of writing in the, the book to reflect and represent the diversity of our actual lives. Hmm. Like our lives are not one kind of narrative. They're not one kind of song. They're not one kind of tone. We're constantly moving between different lenses, for example, through which we see the world. We're, we step in and out of different stories that we're living inside of, whether we're in the public sphere or in the private sphere. And so that's my, from my view, that's actually how we live, is, is that we're kind of constantly moving through what you might call different genres or different uh, uh, aspects of consciousness. And so that's why when I was writing this, I was like, okay, how can I use different genre to help people have a little bit of that experience and also to keep them engaged? Because story is the primary way through which we make sense of our world. I mean, this is why, you know, we always were telling stories around the fire forever, right? Is because this is how we know who we are. This is how we we pass on our values. This is how we uh, share our mistakes and our uh, how we atone, right? We, we do all of that through story. Yeah. And it's also what we remember. 
Like if you think about talks that you go to, right, and there's this person speaking, what do you remember? Like you don't remember the five points that they needed to make. You remember the story that they told. Yeah. And so I knew that a lot of the material I was going to offer was going to be challenging. And this is part of the Thrutopian challenge, right? Mm. Is what we're what we're presenting to people are often things that people want to turn away from or they're in denial about or they like to engage, but it scares them and they don't quite know what to do with that, <laughs> right? And so I was thinking of this as how do I titrate my reader's experience so that they can stay engaged. And so I build in pauses, for example, right. you know, especially if I go through something and I'll, and uh, you know, I have my reader is the main character of the book. And then I'm the writer is also a character in the book and we have conversations. So if I present something that's kind of intense, right. I'll be like, okay, that was a lot. Let's just pause for a moment. Let's take a few breaths how you're feeling in your body, you might want to stop and make some notes about how you're feeling right now, so that we can titrate our experience. Because if we think of ourselves as being in a trauma culture, one of the principles of trauma work is that we don't go any faster than the slowest part of us can go. Yeah, thank you. Because if we try to push forward, then we re-traumatize, or it's possible, not always, it's not a guarantee, but it's possible. So being able to slow down and digest and integrate is absolutely key to healing trauma. Hmm. And so that's a kind of underlying principle throughout the book, which in my view, different genres enable us to do. Because if you have a kind of intense piece about dealing with systemic racism, let's just say, since this is, we've already talked about that today, to be able to pause digest, write about it, think about it, and then go into a story hmm. makes it easier to actually take it in and integrate it and then work with it. Yeah. So that's why there's so many different kinds of information, different ways of presenting information and so on. And I think this is through Topian because form is transmits meaning in a very fundamental way. This is something that, you know, when I was, uh, you know, a professor and academic, I was really aware of, you know, as a literature PhD, right, is form, yes. is what, what can be expressed or not expressed by using different types of form. And so what's the genre but a form? And so with Thrutopia, I think a big part of our, our challenge and opportunity is how do we use form to help us digest the hard bits, you know, face and digest the hard bits and breathe and then be able to stay in or come back. Like you might need a break, come back in, stay in or come back, circle back. So genre enables us to do that. So for me as a nonfiction, you know, not fiction writer, but as you say, there's plenty of narrative. I mean, to me, the whole book is a narrative. It's all a story. Of course. Yes. It's all a story of development and of possibility. Um, and uh, so it was not an easy book to write. I will tell you, it was hard. No, no. Because of trying to make those pieces work. So you don't have a reader all of a sudden go, wait a minute, we were just talking about this. And now all of a sudden we're talking about that. Right. Like, but I, I, 
I, I had fun doing it too. Yeah, and it addresses absolutely what you said at the beginning about way back in 1998, being told about the concept of energetic sovereignty, because sovereignty wasn't a buzzword back in the 90s, was it? I mean, it's really maybe the last five years it really took off, certainly in my listening with the kind of rebel wisdom crowd before the pandemic, sovereignty became a thing. And it's it's kind of floated into different areas now. But when you write in the book, you, you wrote, this book invites you on a many-layered journey to develop your own personal sovereignty and to grow yourself into a compassionate, sovereign steward of our planet in your own unique way. And then what I love about it is that you you ease people, exactly as you said, into asking their own questions. What's my role in regenerating myself on our world? How can I make peace with my past experiences of my ancestors so I can be fully present in the here and now? Really quite deep and challenging questions. And then you say, exactly, let's pause and breathe for a few moments, maybe close your eyes so it's easier to turn your attention inward. You talk people through the actual process that they they need to go through to exactly, as you said, to embody this, to root it, to ground it, to make it part of their own energetic reality. And I'm wondering now that you have a thousand people in your community and you're talking to them, one assumes the community is self-selecting, the people who got it and the people who were able to engage. Are you moving beyond the book or are you taking them through exercises that are in the book and helping them to process them basically in real time? Well, we're right at the beginning, right? So, because the book just came out and honestly, Amanda's people are still getting the book and, you know, so, um, and I had to really actually have a little reality check with myself because I, when I did the first stuff with people who had, who had bought the book, I was like, let's go, let's dive in. And then I was like, oh, wait a minute. They're just getting this book. Yeah. They don't really know what this book is about yet. They don't really know how it's going to challenge them. And so I needed to dial back a little bit and be like, okay, how do I create the foundation? So that's where I'm at right now is really creating this foundation and in in asking them to share what sovereignty means for them. Right. Because I want also want to hear because it helps me understand. And a lot of it, you know, it's it's pretty what I expected, which is about, you know, my like one person said, I'm the boss of my life. And I was like, Yeah, you'd be the boss of your life. So I think that this is, again, it's kind of in the individualism category, uh, which has to do with personal empowerment, which is the way that I talk about feminine sovereignty is personal sovereignty, personal empowerment is necessary. Like we need to learn how to really connect with spirit, work with our emotional energy, know how to work with our, our, you know, our, our auric field, how to have a healthy body, like all that stuff, like that's necessary and it's insufficient. It's just the first step Mm. because when you become really sovereign on the inner landscape in the sense of building your vitality, becoming a well-resourced person, um, having good, knowing what's yours and what's somebody else's and not getting too trapped in that, um, being able to step out of that kind of confining conditioning to be consumers, right? All of that. When, when you've done that, there is this, I think an upwelling in most people to be like, okay, now how can I be in the world? Like, what can I, what can I contribute? What's my purpose? Um, And as a human design expert, many, many people come to me to look to human design to help them understand what their purpose is. 
And I, you know, I have lots of conversation with people about that. T- tell us a little bit more about what human design is, just for people who don't know. Human design is a elegant and sophisticated uh, system that it draws on uh, four ancient wisdom traditions, the yoga traditions, the tree of life from the Kabbalah, uh, astrology, um, and the I Ching. Wow. And it's uh, uncannily accurate. I mean, I'm not really a systems person that way, but when I really got into this, it it, it hooked me. Um, and I think a lot of people are kind of astonished, honestly, at how accurate it is and when I give them a reading. And so a lot of times people do come for this idea of, of purpose. And, and just to say a thing about purpose is I think that there is this huge interest now in purpose. What's my purpose? Like this is a question people ask a lot. And I think it's actually a hallmark of the breakdown of the story of progress, right? Which is that in this country would be the American dream, but other countries have their own version of it, right? Which is get an education, get a good job, you know, have some kids, uh, get married, maybe first, and then, uh, you know, get a big house. Yep. Go up the career ladder, retire, enjoy your golf course. Yep. And in the meantime, buy a lot of stuff. Exactly. Yeah. So it's like being able to step out of that, recognizing, wait a minute, that's not really. And and I talk to people who like did that whole thing. And then they're like, oh no, I'm not happy. And guess what? It looks like it's a problem. This What we're doing is a problem in the world. Oh no. And then what's my purpose, right? right? And I think that the purpose is arising because the purposes that we had you know, in our, in our communities and that we were taught, it's just not working for people all that much. Right. Right. But my view on purpose is, is that it's not like you have a purpose, you know, like you have one thing you're supposed to do. It's more about looking for what makes you feel on purpose. Hmm. It's more of a felt sense. It's more of an energy that you get and it's enthusiasm. Right. And the old meaning of enthusiasm is what makes the God within you dance. Yes. I love that. That's fantastic. That has to be the title. Makes the God within you dance. So like looking for what that, because that means your aliveness is growing. Right. And I'm somebody who's done many, many different things over the course of my life. Right. And when I was in graduate school and when I was a professor, I felt very on purpose for a long time until I didn't. And then I hit a place and I was like, okay, I guess I did what I was supposed to do or what I was going to get out of this. And then I need to go somewhere else and do something else. And then that trend has continued. I've done lots of different things over, you know, throughout my adult life. But what I look for is what's calling me, what's starting to awaken that, that aliveness inside of me so that I feel this fuel for engaging with life. And there are people who do have a purpose. Like my dad knew he was going to be an English professor. His dad was an English professor. He knew that he was born to do that and he did the whole thing. He did the same thing his whole life. For 60 years, I remember he was an English professor. Yeah, huge amount of stuff. And I think he's he's not typical. No. I don't think that many people have that kind of experience. And not now. I think in his generation, it was more. You took a job and that was your job for life. And there was a hierarchy and you slowly climbed the ladder if you were lucky and then you got a pension and then you died. Well, and of course, if we go farther back, right, you became a blacksmith or you were a farmer. You grew up in a farm and you became a farmer or a farmer or a farmer's wife or you, you know, and that's what you did. 
right? But it wasn't necessarily coming from a sense of purpose. No. <laughs> you know what I mean? It was just like, this is what you did, yes. right? And, and and so purpose, this idea around purpose is really a pretty modern idea. I think it is. But I think you could go back far enough. If you go back in t- before the trauma culture, which locked us into farming, mm. and get to the initiation culture again, which we need to bring forward, then the whole point, I think, of the rites of passage was to discover what is it you're really, really good at? What is it that makes you dance with the God within? Mm. And then, mm-hmm. you know, are you a hunter or a craftsperson or a healer or a shaman? You, your purpose was was there, and it, I'm sure it evolved as you connected to the web of life. There was fluidity, but the chance to find what you are supremely good at, what brought the best out of you in conjunction with the rest, I'm sure was a really big part of the rites of passage at the teenage level. Mm-hmm. I hear you. And I think that uh, I'm, I think I'm just talking about people now are talking about purpose. Yes, you're right. Is a modern, I, 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 I hear, I totally hear what you're saying. But even then, you know, when I think about what the, the trajectory in the Bodica books, you know, they're still unfolding a purpose for our main characters, even though they got one level of what they were here for, but then they continued to discover more and more over time. Yes, you have to listen. Right. So I think that it's kind of both and maybe, right? Um, But I do think this interest in purpose has a lot to do with the breakdown of of culture that would help us know that we had had some kind of purpose and we're kind of like well what do we do now like what i get the sense that i get from a lot of people i talk to is like okay i did that thing i even talked to a woman recently who was 29 she was young but she had been a nurse for like eight years and she was like okay i did that thing and i was good at it and i've been rewarded for it and i can make money doing it and it's killing me right and I don't know what to do. And when I did her human design, one of the things I saw is this woman has intuition off the charts, like so much intuition. And I said to her, I said, do you realize how much intuition you have? Are you aware of that at all? She kind of went, well, yeah. But we don't talk about it in public. I, yeah, but it kind of wasn't okay. And I said, I hear you because it was not okay. My intuition was not okay while I was growing up. I really suppressed it, you know, highly intellectual family, right? And she goes, yeah, I didn't. And, and I said, well, and, and then I was like, well, what do you most love to do? And I said, and she was like, well, I love to, I love to coach people. I love to help people. And I'm like, of course you do. Right. Because that's what you're designed to do. You have so much intuition. You're probably an incredible support person for people because you can just tune right into what's going on with them. And she was like, wow, really? You think? I'm like, Yes. And she was like, okay, I'm going to go explore, right? And, and I love that, that process. So to me, that's a liberatory process. It's an example of what we were talking about, how people get acculturated into something. And she didn't even know, or she, didn't, she wouldn't own her intuition. And I'm so happy when I get to talk to somebody who's that age, hmm. because now she can really grow herself through her 30s based in her intuition, rather than coming to me in her 50s, <laughs> having spent another 20 years being a nurse. Yes, yes. Doing something that was destroying her. And so much of our modern culture is that, isn't it? And 
And what, yet what I'm hearing from you is even when we think we found, or when we found a spark of what makes the God within dance, we have to be prepared to put that one down and change and be flexible mm -hmm. in the moment because what we were called to do yesterday may not be what we were called to do tomorrow. And that, again, our culture is not framed for that because, because we still have to pay bills. And paying bills requires some kind of income and the income we feel needs to be stable. Are you... I completely get that in your group everything is is nascent, <laughs> but are you and yourself f seeing a pathway forward to a way of being that doesn't require the strictures of our overculture or superorganism or whatever we call it? Absolutely. I mean, my my intention as of right now is I have a an offering that will start in February, and it is to walk through the eight pillars with me in our community of purpose. And it's not a book club, meaning we're not going to sit down there and just read passages from the book. And it's awesome if people want to do that. And, you know, um, and I've had some people have already told me, yeah, my whole book group got the book. We're going to do it together. And it really is kind of a, you could take this book and, and, and have your own path to, to sovereignty in it. Um, but, my experience is, is that we evolve best in community. There's only so much we can do on our own. Mm. And that it's in a community of purpose that we, uh, we can share, we can be witnessed, we can, and for many people, just the process of sharing and being witnessed is deeply, deeply healing mm. because most, uh, most of us have feel like we didn't get seen and heard for who we really are while we were growing up. And so just being able to share and be witnessed is very, very healing. But then we also can support each other. So you can ask for advice. If you want advice, you can, you can ask for a reflection and be and receiving a powerful reflection from somebody else. It's also deeply healing because a lot of times we didn't get that in our early years. You know, we mostly got told what not to do or what to, to do, but it wasn't about, mm. you know, reflecting your, your brilliance or your magnificence back to you, you know, or, or even just empathizing with, wow, I totally get why that's heartbreaking for you. I, I hear you. Yes. Right. Just having that kind of presence with each other. So a lot of what we're going to be doing is working with the themes, the materials that come, but to do it inside of a community of purpose, because that is the piece that's going to help us digest the way we were just talking about before regarding the, the genres of the book, because in some ways, there, there's a, a phrase that I that I love from Susan Harper, um, who is one of my mentors in Continuum Movement, and she talks about how gravity is a force of belonging, and that this is a really healing experience for many of us because we are unrooted, right? We are often unrooted people. So if we can actually embrace and work with gravity as a force of belonging, we can create a primary or become aware of our primary relationship with the planet, Right. And then I see community as a force of belonging, right? That that is on human scale, that community does that, right? Gravity is a planetary scale, right? And community is human scale, how we create a force of belonging, because feeling isolated, feeling rejected is so depressing. And so, uh, you know, it drains us. 
So actually just feeling like, wow, some other people are grappling with some of the things that I'm grappling with. Um, and also the, the synergy that can happen when people start to work together and new things arise as a result of that, like the creativity, you know, really goes up. So that's what I'm really looking for in this community and, and what we're going to be doing in this year long. Um, it's called the Explorers Club because it is about exploring. It's about exploring the unknown inside of us. It's un- exploring the places that we've turned away from. It's about exploring what's possible both in our own selves and how we can grow ourselves, but then also what's possible when we are comrades and in community with each other. Brilliant. So this is a year long and it's starting in February. When is it starting? And we'll see if we can get this out, this episode out before. It is starting um, there. I mean, February 5th, 14th, I think. Can you send me a link specifically to that? So we'll put it in the show notes. Yes, you may have already sent it because you're very organized and you sent me lots of links. I, I did not send that one, but yeah. Okay, please do, because I think people listening may well want to take part in that. It sounds like an extraordinary thing to do. It'd be great. And yeah, and read the book and then really come and explore. Yeah, and, and the thing about it is that the themes and the opportunity, the invitations in this book are very disruptive in a lot of ways. Mm. They're very challenging. And one of the things I learned about myself and I finally embraced about myself, it's one of the things human design helped me understand about myself is, is that I am a disruptor. Like this is, I just see things differently than a lot of people do. It's called individual circuitry in human design. I just see things differently. I've always been that way. And it's why I'm attracted to Throtopia, you know? It's like, I just see things different. And so being able to disrupt the norms that are harming us is, is vital. And yet it's deeply terrifying for many people. I mean, I have people who've been working with me and who are like wanting this and they're like, it's so scary. I'm like, I I, I'm like, I know it is. Oh, really? Right, right. And, and on a planetary scale, that's where we're at. So many people standing on the edge of the cliff realizing that the bus is on its way over and it's scary because we don't have another roadmap. Right. So are those people, the ones who are afraid, are you able to to help them have a sense that there is a roadmap, even if they can't see exactly what it is? Yeah, well, that's, that is the project. That's the project, right? And that's why, it's, that's why it's an exploration. Because I don't have the answers. Right. You know what I mean? I, I don't have the answers. No, none of us does. But I'm good at asking questions. And then I'm good at supporting and holding space for us to, to respond to the questions and see what arises and see what's valuable. And then also look to see, wow, where's the resistance that's coming up, right? Like I just completed another program um, on Embody Your Human Design. And one of the things we talked a lot about was the process of meeting, meeting myself, right? Because as you grow, as you expand, when you want to move out of your norm, you move out of your comfort zone, you meet yourself and your own resistance, you meet the parts of you that are like, oh, no, 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 don't, no, no, beyond there, dragons, dragons are out there, right? It's like, oh, no, no, no. And then you get to meet that part of yourself. And then how do you work with that? So this is a big part of becoming sovereign is looking at that part of you that wants to keep you safe and going, okay, what of this is useful? 
and what is not. Mm. What do I want to keep? What do I want to evolve? And that's what the project of the book is about all the way through is let's, let's bring up some things and see how we respond and, and be able to process that because, you know, one of the things I know you and I have talked about before is, and I I think this is something accidental God's really taught me is, is we have so many possible solutions right? We don't have maybe ultimate solutions. It's an evolving process. (laughs) But there are so many people doing so many cool things out in the world, right? Yeah. There there really are. There's like all kinds of stuff. Yeah. And yet, as we don't have the will in large enough numbers to be able to turn our attention and our resources in the direction of those things. Yet. Yet. So the project then and from my view, is how do we build the will to do that? And so that's what feminine sovereignty is really. It's like, how do we grow ourselves into the people who can create the culture we'd be proud to leave to future generations, right? That That's the short version of what this is about, right? How do we grow ourselves into those people who have that kind of will yeah, sure. to actually do things differently? Maybe look at, wow, you know, my comfort and my conveniences. Uh, do I actually need all of that? <laughs> like. Yeah, sure. And and it's going anyway. I think part of the conversations that we're having, certainly this year, is even if you think you can't do without them, you're not going to have them much longer. The system is breaking down. And so what can we craft while there is time that will bring us forward in a way that is healing and whole and generative and gives us the space to breathe and enables us to create a space for the future generations to step into? So, yeah. Yeah, I mean, I it's it's there is. I want to just speak to this tension point that you just mentioned, right? Because I think, as you know, you have I've heard you speak about before, and we've talked about in Throughtopia is if you present the facts to people, a lot of times they can't um, they can't digest it. They're like, yeah, yeah, I know. So for me, it's like, how do I, how do I get in there? Mm. How do you get the, the ears open and listening, able to, able to absorb? Yes. Get in the psyche. How do you get in there yeah. so that people are willing to actually have the challenging conversations with themselves to start out with, but then with other people? Mm. And are you finding that the people coming to you, you're still at that? Because I'm imagining the people who come to you have had those challenging conversations and are now wanting to step into, okay, so what's possible? But are you finding that actually you're still at the process of... Oh, yeah. Oh, really? Okay. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And that may change over time because, of course, in terms of my whole kind of development of my body of work, the book and Feminine Sovereignty in its form is new for the population that I've had. Okay. And so my intention is now that the book is here and I'm getting to talk to you and to talk to other people that I will be attracting more people who are like you're saying at the stage that you're talking about. Right. Right. But your existing uh, community needs to be led to the, to the edge, so to speak. Yeah. Well, I think it's a, it's a mix. It's a mix, right? 
but you know, like there was a woman who responded this morning to something who was saying, yeah, I'm not really sure what I think about sovereignty. I grew up in a communist country and the way that we were, you know, kind of like the environment I grew up in, you know, and so, cause sovereignty sounds a little bit like authoritarianism. And so I need to digest that. And I was like, I was like, thank you for bringing that up yeah. because yeah. these are kind of some of the, the, the pieces, but she's also somebody who was saying, yeah, sovereignty for me is being able to be in command of my life, be in charge of my life, which for somebody who grew up in a, in a, in a communist country where she didn't get to do that. Um, it totally makes sense. So that's where she's at. Yeah. Right. So people, there's a whole spectrum, right? There's a whole spectrum. And as you know, you've said many times, we need all of us, right? So I'm like, wherever you're at, come on in, let me meet you where you're at. We got something for you, no matter where you are. <laughs> Excellent. <Yay. laughs> and we'll keep moving it along. <laughs> yeah. And you have the skills to do that. That's, that's the amazing thing is you have built this. But the other thing, Amanda, just related to what you're saying is, is that I'm also a little later in the year is I'm going to create the Feminine Sovereignty Leadership Incubator, which is for a more intimate group of people who really want to do stuff. Right. Right. It's about what, what are the projects? What's the inner landscape project you want to work on? What's in the out of the world project you want to work on? And so that's for people who are like, okay, got it. Got the idea of feminine sovereignty. Now I want to do some stuff. And I'd like to do that with support. Um, you know, of me and of other, you know, other community members. So, because I want that kind of an offering for those people. And it's an incubator because I think, you know, some people are going to read this book and they're going to be like, wow, I could go and work with my city right now. Mm. Right. They don't, they don't need my incubator. Right. Right. They're activated. They're going to go, they're going to do whatever they're going to do. But there's people who are like, that would be such a good idea, but I don't know how to do it, or I don't know what the steps are. They want the community and the support and everything you've spoken about. Exactly. To just help them ease into yeah. it, because it's going against the flow still. And I think that that's, that those, we're, we need incubators, right, um, to, to create environments where people can grow their capacity mm. um, so that they can really step out as greater change agents in the world. Yeah. But my view is it's really important that it comes from the inside and that they do it not with the old paradigm of, I have to go out and fight yes. for everything, right? But how do we transform in a different way? Because we got to step out of that power over, power under paradigm. Yes. yes. And the whole of your spiraling inwards, the first four, the eight pillars spiraling in and then the second four spiraling out and communication that connects and mutually beneficial collaborations. They're all about building networks, not forcing people, about engaging beautifully. So I'm guessing you don't yet have dates for the incubator, but when you do, send them and I will put them in the show notes. And if you're listening to this later in the year, check out the show notes because it might well be there. Yes. Yeah, probably by March. Oh, cool. Not even that late. There probably we go. by March, yeah. I'm just going to get the Explorers Club going first, and then we'll see. And I would just say, if any of you are listening and you're interested in that, just contact me, and we'll we'll connect. Yeah, get, put your name on a list. We are, we're over time. I go over time all the time. So in wrapping up, is there anything else that you wanted to say or that you would like to say as closing to people? You matter. You matter. And what I hear from people a lot is, what can I, what, what could, 
What can I do that would matter? And it's a very disempowering mindset. And I think that so much of culture has taught us that we don't matter. Mm. I actually just Mm. saw a post on Instagram from Rockefeller saying, I don't want a nation of thinkers. I want a nation of workers. And I thought, you know, this is how we've been enculturated, right? Is we don't matter. What we feel doesn't matter. What we think doesn't matter. Our creativity doesn't matter unless we're being good workers. And then we're creating profit for others, right? And so it's a big step and a big process to own your own value, to own your worthiness, to own your magnificence, to activate your intuition and your creativity, which are absolutely vital for us to make our way through (laughs) to that world we want to leave to future generations. We're not going to do it just with our left brains. We, We have to activate all these other aspects of ourselves. And so you and your development and your your feelings matter. We have to get in touch with our emotional state. We have to learn how to honor our emotions, but not be controlled by them. This all matters. And whoever taught you or whatever system taught you that you don't, um, just know that it's not accurate. And you have magnificence inside of you to offer and that we have so much to offer each other. And I would love to meet you and find out the specific ways in which you matter. All right, people, there we go. I will put links in the show notes through which you can connect with Maggie and get to know each other. Maggie Osara, thank you so much for coming on to the Accidental Girls podcast. That was a delight. And I look forward to hearing how it all goes. Thank you, Mandy. Always enjoy. And there we go. That's it for another week with enormous thanks to Maggie for the amount of time and thought and wisdom that she has put into this book and then that she's bringing to the world with her courses. Everything that she does is aligned towards creating a world that we would be proud to leave behind, which is a phrase that I hope by now trips off your tongue very readily and is a space that you want to come into. If we don't leave a world that we'd be proud to leave behind, the one we would not be proud to leave behind is being modelled for us daily. You only have to look at the newspapers, watch any kind of media to see what the old paradigm thinks is what it needs to do, what it can do, what it must do. I don't know quite what is pushing it, but it isn't good. And this is not, I feel, a world that any of us would be proud to leave behind. So then, what is ours to do? What can we do and how do we do it? Individually and together, how do we build our communities of place, of passion and of purpose and then network those communities in big coordinations of shared value so that we can change the way the world behaves? 2024, I really believe, is the year when this is becoming absolutely, obviously essential for anybody who has any measure of empathy or even a basic desire for a world that thrives. So that's us. If you've got that far, it's definitely you. I thoroughly recommend Maggie's book. And if you have the time and space to go on one of her courses, then I imagine that would be a pretty remarkable experience. 
pretty much guaranteed to help you find a tribe that you can connect with. So there we are. That's it for this week. Enormous thanks to Kara C for the music at the head and foot and for the sound production. Thanks to Anne Thomas for the transcript and to Faith Tillery for the website, for wrestling with all of the tech and, most importantly, for the underlying conversations that keep us moving forward. And then, an enormous thanks to you for listening, for caring, for grappling with the really hard and wicked problems of our time. But if not us, who and if not now, when? So let's go for it. And if you know of anybody else who wants to dig more deeply into the ways that we can regenerate ourselves and the living planet, then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you and goodbye.